0: My friend, this is Alex McRobbs, founder of the Mindful Life Practice, and you're listening to the Sober Yoga Girl podcast. I'm a Canadian who moved across the world at age 23, and I never went back. I got sober in 2019, and I realized that there was no one talking about sobriety in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, so I started doing it. I now live in Bali, Indonesia, and full-time run my community, The Mindful Life Practice. I host online sober yoga challenges, yoga teacher trainings, and I work one-on-one with others, helping them break up with booze for good. In this podcast, I sit down with others in the sobriety and mental health space from all walks of life and hear their stories so that I can help you on your journey. You're not alone, and a sober life can be fun and fulfilling. Let me show you how. All right. Good morning, everyone. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Sober Yoga Girl. I am so excited today because I have my teacher on the podcast, Rolf Gates, and the funny thing is that, you know, we actually did Rolf Gates' book as the very first book club for Meditations from the Mat about um, two years ago, our first book club for the Mindful Life Practice. And I wrote a post saying I was bringing Rolf on the podcast and someone commented saying, wow, like two years ago, we were joking about this happening and now it's actually happening, which is so cool. So really happy to, hear you, uh, to have you here and welcome, Rolf. Thank you.
1: Great to be here.
0: And for Rolf, it is 6 p.m. on Wednesday. And for me, it's 5 a.m. on Thursday in Dubai, which is pretty cool.
1: <laughs> We're time traveling in both directions.
0: hmm
1: Right? You're in the past and I'm in the future. Other way. I'm it's in the not- future. Oh, really? I was like, but it's not a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Don't feel bad about being in the past. I'm like, wait, I'm in the past? <laughs>
0: So I want to give a bit of context into my sort of story with how I came to Rolf's teachings. So I actually, I've been doing yoga now for about 10 years, teaching yoga for seven. And when I first started practicing yoga, Rolf's book, Meditations from the Mat, was actually on the shelf at the yoga studio that I worked for. And I was getting really into yoga philosophy. At this point, it was before I was a yoga teacher. So I was just kind of like cleaning the studio in exchange for yoga classes and hanging around. And the owner of my studio that I worked for said, you know, if you're getting really into yoga philosophy, you should read this book by Ralph Gates. So I read the book. It is like the one book that I like reread over and over again. Like someone, you know, posted a meme saying, "What's the one book you reread over and over again?" The other day, and I was like, "It's Meditations from the Mat." And then, how it became very relevant for me was when I was first becoming sober. I, you know, was alone in Abu Dhabi. I didn't know anyone else that was on a sober journey. Anyone else that was sober, and the one person that I knew was. Rolf Gates, because I remember it was like a theme woven throughout Meditations on the Mat, which I had read you know, seven years before. And so I picked up the book again. And then I read your third book, Daily Reflections on Yoga, Addiction and Getting Well. That was like the first... I think that was like the first book I read in my recovery. And then I was like, okay, well, I have to meet Rolf Gates. And so I ended up going down to do a teacher training with Rolf around my 100 days sober. And it was like a really special milestone. And it was the first time I ever spoke in a room about my sobriety around people. And, you know, now I have a podcast about it. So it just shows like how much has changed in the, the three years. And so anyway, Rolf is a really meaningful teacher to me. And so I'm just really excited and happy that he's here today. So thank you so much, Rolf.
1: Oh, you're welcome. And congratulations on, on everything, really. And just I'm so happy for you.
0: Oh, thank you. So, I was wondering. I know many of the people listening have probably read your book. I'm, al- I always joke. I'm like, I should really make a commission off of it because I feel like I've sold it to like convinced so many people to buy it. But for people that aren't that have not read your book that are listening to the podcast, I was wondering if you could start us off by giving a little bit of like an introduction and telling us about you.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to have me talk about meditations from Matt yeah, you like, couldn't right. do either <laughs> I'm gonna start with that because it's a pretty deep uh, connection um, so yeah I got I got sober in 1990 and it was kind of before kind of yoga and meditation were widely available so the only practice I had was going to meetings and for like my first five years and after that I started going to Kerpalo but it was still like I in the 90s my wife and I would drive to New York take class at Jivan Mukti and then drive home. So it's a three-hour drive from wow. Boston to New York. take class, have lunch with a friend in New York, and then drive back and bring a bunch of books with us. You know, and then on vacation, I would just go to Kropala, which was two hours uh, west of Boston, and spend a the week there and come home with a bunch of VHS videos. Um, and that was pretty much it. Um, I think I I ended up with Patabi Joyce's um, first series and second series videos and studied them and. Uh, I think Richard Freeman had a first series Ashtanga video. And that was pretty much the only videos available. Wow. And so, and I had, and so we just kind of made things up a little bit, uh, very, I uh, did a, a class with a teacher and to read like four of us would show up, you know, every Saturday. And one of them was the husband, you know, and that was like kind of yoga scene, Right. Wow. And um, it was, uh, we were a little ahead of, ahead of our time, you know, but so that first decade of my recovery was almost entirely going to meetings. Wow. And I found Meetings so poignantly beautiful and amazing that I, I spent that first ten years being like, I, I I can't believe all of this goodness is coming into my being right now. It's just too much for one person. It's like, how will I ever be able to share what I'm experiencing? And it was just was like, I went to meetings every day. I double up on weekends, so there's a lot of goodness it was just being poured into me like picture was 10 years 365 days so it's over 3650 meetings it's poured into me all of this goodness I mean this is like in these are fairly these are urban meetings so there's like 50 60 people in the room all the time and so all these people like sharing their journey and I was just like I was just being filled you know and so there was this really really deep desire in me to share the beauty that had been like I feel like I kind of got it like I washed up on the shores, you know, like got had picked me up and then had put me in this place where I got to see just amazing things for a very long time, like many, many years of just amazing lessons and just amazing examples, amazing, 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 amazing. And it's just like, how will I ever share that? And at some point along the way, I guess, I guess since you're asking me, I'll, I'll give a tiny bit slower version of this. Um. I came back from the army. I got sober in the army. I came back six months sober, and I didn't have like any career to speak of because my career had been in the military.
0: Right.
1: And so after a few years, I kind of ended up in addictions counseling. And in this whole time, I'm going to meetings. And it's amazing, 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 amazing. And at the meetings, I kind of learned that you you should have a path of service you should find a path of service. And I was like, well, oh, you know, I think helping people get into recovery sounds great because I had a wonderful rehab experience. I'm not sure how many people have that, but I had one of, I had like a movie, like montage rehab experience, you know, like, like you come in you're feeling crappy. And then the counselor says like, you can do it. And then they cue the montage and you're like, you're like, you know, like I quit smoking. I started running in the morning. You know, it's wow. like, you know like I had a whole montage it was 6 weeks it was in the summer in Europe in Stuttgart it was just like very very Germany won the world cup that that summer and we were in rehab like yay because we were living in Germany and we were like on the we were for Germany for some reason and but I kind of bought a hook line sinker into that culture and a big part of that culture is a path of service and so i got literal and i was like well i'll i'll help people get sober i went to school for that, got a job for that, and I started working with traumatized young people, that was very hard. And I had to dig very deep to do that work. Deepest I probably had to dig in my life in terms of professionally. Probably the, the greatest professional challenge of my life was the my first two years working full-time in addictions treatment. And to kind of meet that challenge, those VHS videos I was bringing home from Kripalu, I started doing in the morning. I kind of created this little practice where it was like, 20 minutes of sitting meditation. No, it was 20 minutes of yoga. So it was 20 minutes of VHS yoga with this woman named Mega in the pink leotard, and then um and then I'd sit for half an hour. So it was about an hour practice, and I found that the somehow the poses were really important because like the being around traumatized children and like their anger and their sadness was like hard on the body, you know, and doing the poses was necessary. I didn't know why, but it was really like, I couldn't be around trauma without doing poses in my body, but also the the challenge of not giving in to the kind of despair of the situation and to be visionary, to be visionary in the face of that despair was meditation was required. It's like, I'm not going to like roll over here. I'm going to be successful here. I got like a mission, right? Like, like I'm going to show up every day, like from a place of proactivity. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna burn out here. I'm not. I'm gonna respond here, and I'm gonna. Get, I'm gonna get better. These kids are gonna get better. To find that gear, you know, I needed meditation. There was something about meditation that um, allowed me to see the opportunity in my environment every, yeah, you know, on a daily basis, not like once in a while, at these flashes of insight, but, but to see that you know, you we're always in a situation. In that situation, we'll always have possibility, right? Which the Buddhists would call onward leading. There's a door opening somewhere in this situation for that is beneficial. that is a benefit to all beings, right? And like meditation was like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, because it's like hard. Like those places are hard, right? To be in, um, if nothing else is that we're sitting in, we're stepping into a very fast moving stream, you know of like karma, like the parents' karma, the kids' karma, the staff's karma, everyone's karma is like moving along. And it's just like, it's not acceptable really to like go with that stream. The Buddha called his practice going against the stream. It's like, not. it's like just repeating the same mistakes over and over again is the stream. But even that fast moving stream is another just another situation where there's a possibility here that's onward leading. And there was a way that meditation, it wasn't like, it wasn't linear, it's like I would sit, I would sit, I would sit, and sooner or later, what I learned later is divine guidance answers the question that you are asking. Divine guidance answers it, and so I was asking a question about these kids' well-being and how I could be a part of that. and And what's happening in meditation is, is among other things, where we're opening up that crown chakra and we're opening up that third eye, and so divine guidance comes in. And that third eye kind of figures out where to where to put it. It's like divine guidance gives you a beautiful vase. And you're like, where do I want to put this in my room? You know, that's that's the third eye. Like the divine guidance is coming. Here's your vase. And you're like, thank you. Like where do I put this. You know, I want to put this somewhere. Right. And so like divine guidance comes in and the third eye is like, I think tomorrow afternoon I'm going to have Jim Q be the one who leads the centering. Right. It's just like you start to like the third eye is like, okay, I know that I've got the guidance. Like, how do I put it in? And so the yoga was helping me with the embodied trauma. And then the meditation was helping me to see there's a way that the trauma lives in the first three chakras. It's the old world. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're called to create the new world. And the skills of the fifth, sixth and seventh chakra are about creating the new world. Right. And then the third eye is about seeing the possibility of the new world, seeing the possibility of the new world. And so, yeah, we have, and so the the yoga was like, I have the old world, like, like calling to be healed in my body. And that's what the poses are about, you know, and the new world is calling to be seen. Right. And that's what the meditation was about. It's not bad. You know, what's interesting is that is I was forged in that, right. There's a phrase to be created by that, which you are compelled to create. This is by Mark Nepo to be created by that, which we feel compelled to create. Right. And so that was like 96 to like 99. The program I was working in was so difficult that, that you had to do a two year commitment or or you couldn't work there. Cause, cause people would, would come for a month and quit. Wow. And all these kids would have these adults quitting on them. Yeah. So you couldn't in you know, honorability, we had one staff member quit, but basically you gave your word to the program that you wouldn't quit for two years and that was like a long hard two years and like <laughs> I was, I was, when i think of like the four years in the infantry in the army i'm like oh you know there was some ups and downs when i think of, I think of those two years i like that was a long hard two years <laughs> it was like extremely taxing two years of my life uh i've never been prouder of anything than than what those two years of like of not like of learning and growing through those two years, it got me into graduate school, you know. Mm-hmm. And I went to graduate school for social work to become a you know addiction treatment person because that's my path of service. And mm-hmm. and I needed a part time job. And before I went to graduate school, I was like, I'm going to go to Kropalo for a month. And they're like, What can I do? It's like, Well, they have a teacher training there. Okay, I'll do a teacher training. But I was just, like, Amazing. I wanted to go to Kropalo for a month, right? I wanted to. I wanted to, I wanted to walk into the waters of the lake in July and walk across the cool green grass and smell the trees. I, I could care less about teacher training. I didn't care about like, like. I did not want to be a teacher. A teacher. I, I was wow. full, but I just wanted to spend a month at Capalio. And so I walked out of there like having been trained as a teacher. Didn't think much about it. But graduate school doesn't pay you. I uh, need to get paid working per diem at that time as a counselor was like six dollars and 75 cents an hour Wow! So it's almost like yeah it's just like okay so that's not a real option I not kind of do me much like you put an eight so my my placement in graduate school was a 40-hour work week that was unpaid so i'm like i can't go now and like work for eight hours at six dollars and yeah 75 cents and like how and then pay taxes on that and have that be a useful have that be useful you know but then someone in my extended family was like, hey, I'm opening this this wellness center. Can you, be, can you want to teach yoga there? Um, and we'll pay 50 bucks a class. Wow. Now, divine guidance speaks to me all the time. And I think that being good at most professions is learning how to listen to divine guidance or intuition or whatever. But every once in a while, it's different. I've had it maybe be different like once or twice in my life. The first time when I got sober, I, I got sober through, I did a prayer and the desire was lifted, and I and I said, "Oh, it's going to be okay." You know, that was like my the first like the first seconds of my sobriety. I um, oh, it's going to be okay. Like I hadn't said anything was going to be okay my entire life. Nothing had been okay. Not I'd never felt that feeling before because nothing was okay. It was that's why I didn't mind being in the military. I just mind, didn't mind being a ranger. I didn't mind like living a life like that was inherently dangerous because life, it wasn't more or less dangerous anywhere, as far as I was concerned. Nothing was going to be okay, right? There was no okay. Okay did not exist in my world. It wasn't an option, right? And I prayed and I was like, oh, it's going to be okay. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's, like, like I, it's like literally the first time in my life I even knew that existed. <laughs> I was like, like to even say it is, what is it? And I knew what it was. I knew what it was and I knew it was going to be okay. Oh, it's going to be okay. Uh, like 10 years later, I'm talking to this woman who's, a, you know, she's a friend of the family. And I'm, I was like, she's hiring me to teach yoga. And and I swear to God, (laughs) it's really funny now to say this, like like on record. But a voice said to me, "It's really important that you teach yoga." (laughs) 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 I'm on the phone, and I'm in my I'm in I'm I'm newly newlywed in in this on 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 was it It was twenty one Chauncey Street in like. On, in Harvard Square, and I'm in a graduate school, and I'm working in Boston. You know, and it's like dark because it's like Boston. So even though it's like the fall, it's already dark um, at night. I'm talking to this person about this job. This, I'm teaching. I'll be teaching in Fresh Pond. It's the first teaching job I ever got. It was uh, it was um, fall '97, and I'm like, oh, it's gonna not <clears throat> gonna be a case. Uh, oh, it's really important that you teach yoga. And I was like, well, that's interesting. You know, I, I didn't know, I didn't I wasn't galvanized in action. But what happened next was I um I taught my first class and the next morning I was freaking juiced. I loved it. I just I was just like, there's a song by Patty Griffith that's like duh, duh, that I was listening to It's like very upbeat. I would play it, but I don't think people need to hear this. But um <laughs> yeah, I really got <laughs> Do you want to hear the song that I played? Yes. You kind of want to? Play it. I don't know. I don't don't know what it'll come across on Zoom, though. Okay. It's too
0: bad. Maybe I'll put a link to it in the episode. Yeah, wait. I I can at least give you the...
1: I can at least... I have it on my laptop. Never mind. It's hard to tell the story without the beat of that song. But I'm listening to this song, and I knew there's this really beautiful beat that I'm listening to. I'd wake up in the morning. I would do my Ashtanga practice. So that it a certain time. And, and I have my like my little special, like, you know, vegetarian breakfast. Cause I was very like devout. And, um, and I'm listening to this song and I'm like, so into it. And I was like, I got to teach every day because I was so stressed before teaching. Mm-hmm. And I was so amped after teaching that I was like, this is unmanageable. I need to like, teach all the time so this becomes normal. This isn't like freaking out. I can't be on these emotional ups and downs. I did teach all the time to kind of... So I ran around Boston and started looking for opportunities to teach and and I'm going to jump ahead now and one thing led to another. So that about two years later I started teaching large classes at the first big power yoga studio in Boston and this woman, Katrina Kennison, was one of my students. And I figured out something from twelve-step programs that Jack Kornfield had learned, you know, thirty or forty years earlier when he was he was teaching mindfulness in Thailand when he was like with his teacher Ajahn Chah in the room, like he was teaching mindfulness back when he was still in the robes. you know, and and his teacher observed him and said, "You make them laugh and then you put the medicine in their mouths," and. That's what 12-step programs do, is they tell these stories, and you kind of laugh and cry along with them, and your psychological defenses drop, and then the medicine comes in. With the medicine is the truth, right? And so I yeah. I learned that style of teaching from 12-step programs, which is so ingrained in me, that when I started teaching yoga classes, I just automatically did the Jack cornfield thing, where you kind of make them laugh, and you kind of make them relax. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like you make them laugh and then you put the medicine in, you know, and so and then and yoga is so fantastic because it's not just like a stand up routine. You're doing this beautiful somatic process to people and they're like they're healing, you know, they're healing at that level, you know, and also as they heal, I think what's happening is so there's like divine guidance is coming in, but our energy bodies speak to each other, right? You're like our energy bodies are in are basically in constant communication and they cannot be lied to. Right. And so you're in class and those people are are healing, that healing process is communicating itself to you. And so you're not just making them laugh and putting them in the medicine. It's like there's a co-creation happening, right? Between kind of divine guidance coming in, right? But also the the collective genius being expressed. Right. And so those two elements are like um informing the choices you make as a teacher, as you get sensitive to that. And what kind of Katrina Tennyson was like, you should just write a book of your stories. Cause I would just tell stories in class to, you know, to get people, you know, to where they need to go. And I said, Mm -hmm. sure. And that was 2001. Well, it was fall 2000, fall 2000. And then I started writing in 2001 and, um, and to close this part of it, um that book was where I took those ten years of amazing and and passed it on. You know, like I think what people are feeling from those words, because it's just it is possible. It seems it when when I was when I was writing that book, I was aware of like the profundity of what I was trying to accomplish right um, um, which is to help people see and feel what I saw and felt when I became available to a healing path and to a healing community and to a healing discipline right like how sweet it is for a human to, to kind of surrender and heal yeah, and to be in the presence of surrendering and healing it's just like Okay, that's awesome. This <laughs> is like, that's completely what I came for. Right? It's like, I'm 100% all in, you know? But it's hard to get there. Mm. It's hard to get there, you know? It's hard to get past. We're our own worst enemy in some ways. And and, and like, we, we defend against what we desire, you know? Um, and what we des- desire is so, like, in this case, I think the phrase, I mean, it, there's many phrases for it. But I think the phrase of surrendering to you know our own healing process, right? There's a phrase: step forward into your medicine. And when you're stepping forward into your medicine, you're stepping forward into the medicine you need for yourself. But you are also stepping forward into the medicine you're meant to bring into the world. And this is what you're doing so beautifully here with this podcast: is you're stepping forward into your medicine, right? And as you're stepping forward into your medicine, you're stepping forward into the medicine you were meant, born to bring into the world. Bravo. <laughs> right. Bravo. But that's because I was stunned. Like, like when you write a book, um, we have a negativity bias. We have a confirmation bias. Right. And so when I wrote that book, I was like, OK, I'm done with this. And I walked away, you know, and then the publishers were like, oh, yeah, your editor has gone. Um, they walked away from it. I walked away. Everyone walked away from that book. The me and Random House walked away. And I went and I went and lived my life and like nine or ten years later people have been inviting me to do workshops because of that book and I signed you know five yeah. ten thousand copies of that book so there, I was aware that there was like I felt like there was like a cult following like <laughs> I was not in any way like wanting to reconnect to that I had shame. When you're in odd video, you're not seeing things as they are.
0: Yeah.
1: So like, you're like, how do you feel about your book? I I had shame. (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) It's like, well, I had a video. (laughs) Oh, okay. That makes sense. You know, people look at the, yeah, I feel fat. And you're like, what? (laughs) Do you understand? Instead of having body body image issues with my body, I had it with my book. (laughs) I had book (laughs) image issues, right? Because you can't see yourself. Yeah can't see yourself you know so i was just like you know what's gonna make me happy is to forget it existed because i have wow. too much like it's too complicated for me like all i could see was its faults yeah now when i pick it up today and read it i'm like oh that's badass that's freaking perfect oh that's perfect oh that's perfect Oh, that's perfect you know honestly i'm like what the hell you didn't know that right it's like i read i mean not all of them are perfect but a lot of them are right? yeah. a lot of them, like, damn, you know, that's really good. That's really good. Like, I don't even remember writing it. Right. I can kind of remember writing it, but not really remember writing it. But when I read it, I'm like, cause I am picky. <laughs> I, I am extremely picky. I don't think you can be good at stuff without being a little picky.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. You gotta be a little picky. It's like, no, no, it's not half of what you're trying to say. You want to say all of it. And you want to say it beautifully, right? Like, how about that for our standard? Right? <laughs> I'm a little picky, right? When I look at that, I'm going to be as picky about that book as I'm going to be picky about any aspect of this art. And I look at him, oh, that's, that's, that's perfect. That was really well done. <laughs> it's like, but when I walked away from it, I couldn't do it. And I just, now I'm in Boston. It's like probably 2011 or whatever, 2012. And I, and I have an in-law who's big in publishing, uh, and he's in Random House, who was the house that owns my book. And he, and he said, yeah, Rolf, I looked up uh, I looked up your numbers. Because I'm like, Pff. I'm like, oh he's like, yeah, I looked up your numbers. <laughs> You're doing very, very well. And what your numbers are telling you is that you have a voice that your audience responds well to. And this is like the first moment. I'm in the driveway in like, I can't remember what community. I'm in like Alston, Massachusetts. And first time I kind of took the book seriously, like, Oh, this book is a part of my life. Like, I can't walk away from this book. This book is a part of my life and I have to decide what I'm going to do with it. I I can't like, think of the shame and the kind of the toxic relation to yourself that would make you run away from your book for 10 years. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, like my mom, my biological mother left me in an orphanage and there's like a way that I'm like, how could you ever do that? How could you leave your child? How could you leave your child? How could you leave your child? You know, how could you leave your child? How could you leave your child? How could you leave your child? How could you possibly just like walk away from your child and never want to see it again? Just like walk away and be like, I'm good. Cause I've met her since and we've had, we have issues, you know, cause so I'm like, how could you walk away from your child? How could you walk away from your child? But like, you know, 2011 and 12, I'd walked away from that. I'd signed every book everyone wanted me to write. And I'm like, oh, that's great. That's good. <laughs> but I, I was just like, this book sucks. That's good. That's good. That's good. Because it's just, you know what I mean? Like, think of like what happened. Think of, of someone who'd leave their child at an orphanage, how wounded their relationship to themselves are. Yeah. You know, that's what's You know what I mean? It's just like, they're just like so wounded. They can't, they don't feel worthy of. But when I was in the process of writing the book, I was all in. I was completely in the joy of the process. It was like, it's really two different things. It was like me in the process of writing it, and, and it was like a download. I had 10 years of gratitude for people who'd helped me, and I wanted to share. I was just, my way of expressing that gratitude was to, um, to pass it on. You know, when my intuition, when, my, when Divine Guidance, um, it shows me an image, and it just says, tell them about this, you know? And there's a way that that book was a way for me to be like, um, and then I experienced this. And then I, then there was this other day I experienced this. And then there was this other day I experienced this. And on this day, it was like a Saturday afternoon and I experienced this. Because it was just every day, every day was like showing up for a miracle and then a miracle happening, you know? And it's just like, I can't have this, me be the only one who ever saw this was my feeling. I'd have it over and over again. of just like, this is so beautiful. This is so beautiful. This is so beautiful. I can't, I, I this can't be the end of it. I can't let this, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative. I'm worthy. I deserve this. However, I really, really want someone, some, I want to share this. I want to share this and that enormous, like, you know, the, um, I think it's, Esther Hicks talks about rockets of desire, that enormous intention ended up in that book. <laughs> Right. And so that's, that's that book. So I'm glad that you got caught in some of that.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much there in what you shared and, and so many different things that I, I relate to, but yeah, that whole idea of you feeling shame about it to me just seems like the most like ridiculous thing because I'm, I, I'm like obsessed with that book. <laughs> I have like passages memorized from it, and I remember I was actually thinking about when I first showed up on your teacher training on the first night. They were like, "Okay, you said you know let's go around and share why we're here, or you know what we're hoping to get out of it." And I was like, "Okay, I I like can't seem like a Rolf Gates super fan," so <laughs> came around and I was like, "Hi, I'm Alex. I'm from Abu Dhabi, and like I really like yoga workshops." <laughs> <laughs> that's literally what I said and I remember a few days later when I told you I was like I'm actually like a super fan and you were like oh I was thinking like you know she must really love yoga workshops if she
1: <laughs> came all the way here
0: well it was like this like small little workshop in the middle of
1: like like apparently like Kerpalo and Kripalu on, in the summer used to be like the prime time and now it's like New Year's and Christmas, it was just like, it's like the place was like sleepy and quiet. Yeah. It just didn't, I was just like, wow, it's like kind of young, vibrant persons traveled halfway around the world to go to this workshop, you know, can I ask you a question?
0: Yeah, sure.
1: So, you know, I'm happy to talk about like what happened, but I, I kind of had a pretty ordinary, like drinking story and getting sober story, you know, like I drank a lot, I had like probably the genetic predisposition and it really didn't work out for me at all. It was a big, huge mess and it was dramatic and everything. Of course, I was young, so I made it very really dramatic, but it was really just an embarrassing mess. I had really no choice but to kind of, you know, get help. But I remember you at a hundred days and I kind of want to know like, what was, uh, what happened after? Like what happened? So you leave Kripal, then what happens?
0: So... At the time that I had come to Kripalu, um, so right when I got sober, I met a psychic. I don't know if I would have told you about him. I wasn't really talking. I wasn't speaking about him that publicly because I thought it made me seem like very strange. Um, But around 30 days sober, I met a psychic who told me that I was going to start this business, which I have now, the Mindful Life Practice. And he said it was going to be like a retreat center, which I was like, okay, I don't have any money. So I like have no idea how that's going to happen, but okay. And so he was the one who kind of sent me on this path of like, you know, start doing all these things. He said, you know, do this life coach training. He didn't tell me to come Meet you. That wasn't part of it. But I, he kind of set me on this path of like, this is your dharma and your purpose. And so, like, everything you do is to fulfill this, basically. And so, I was in this really hardcore, like, I'm going to, you know, do all these things and start a business and quit my teaching job by the end of the year was basically the plan. And then I did a life coach training, came back to Abu Dhabi, went back to teaching. But the problem for me was that, so I was building my business, but then I also had. A partner who I thought, you know, worked in the fitness industry, and I thought was going to like help me achieve my goal. Like I, so I was like kind of working alongside him and sort of working for his company in Abu Dhabi, basically. And then, mm-hmm. so this was still going. I was still teaching. I was getting nowhere with anything because I wasn't building my own business. I was like building his. And then the pandemic hit, and there was like a big, you know, explosion around um, between the two of us. Big breakup. Lost my job, and then started teaching yoga on zoom. And that was it. That was like, I described to people, it was like the mind life practice was like in the womb, you know, the whole time. Mm -hmm. But it was like, I just needed this big dramatic shift where everything got taken from me. Like it was like in that time I was like running around Abu Dhabi and tutoring and teaching private yoga and working at the gym and at the school and blah, blah, blah. But then the pandemic hit and it was like, I had nothing. And I was just in my apartment and I was like, Okay, I guess it's time to like really build this business, <laughs> um, and so then that was when it started. and And the funny thing was that I never wanted sobriety to be my thing. Like, even mm-hmm. when I came on your training, I wasn't even talking about it. I had never publicly talked about it. It was like on mm-hmm. the. I remember I always tell the story, which I think is so funny. The project that you gave us was ordinary moment from the last 90 days and, you know, make a Dharma talk on it and embody it and whatever. And I just remember coming to you and like hysterically crying. And my reason that I couldn't do it was I was like, no moment has been ordinary in my life. And and I said, and I feel like I'm plagiarizing a Rolf Gates book because everything that I say is like, your ideas. And Mm -hmm. there were two, well, there's two reflections I have on that. And one is like, that was like clearly just this act of self-sabotaging because that's like a ridiculous reason to not do something because my life hadn't been ordinary. (laughs) Like that's stupid. The second thing that I've always remembered you said in that day was, he said, "You know, do you think I came up with kindness? Do you think I came up with believing in yourself? Like We all walk in the footsteps of those who came before us. And it's actually been a theme that I've been really getting into in my teaching and my work right now is like this idea that I am this collection of like every single person that came before me. And my students are this collection of every single person that came before them. And we're all carrying this parts of these teachers and we pass it on. And I just think it's like, the most beautiful thing that you know, my students have bits of Ralph in them, and you know because we all just carry mm-hmm. our teachers who came before us.
1: Wow! Yeah, I want to tell you. Uh, I'll do a brief. Um, yeah, I'm working with this guy who's going to be talking to some judges. He's in. He's a lawyer, and he's with the bar association. You know, he's at the state level, and so he's he's doing a breath work workshop for these for the judges of his state. Wow couple hundred people and so we're we're working on his presentation and um he's got this he's he's kind of a beautiful man you know like um and so this is what he said you know last night we were talking about what like what his theme is and he's like he's like my theme is legacy um i see all of us as we're in a relay race right and Those who came before us give us the baton, right? For a while, we carry that baton, and then we can't choose who we're going to pass it on to, but then we pass the baton on. And it's like, legacy is about knowing what baton you want to carry, right? And then how you want to carry it, right? And so he's going to speak to those judges about, like, legacy. Like, what baton is worth giving your life to, right? And then how do you want to carry it? You don't know who you'll be passing it on to, but how do you want to carry it? And I, I'm really hearing that with you is this idea of like, for a while we carry that baton and you and I yeah. chose you again in recovery, right. As the baton we're going to carry and we're going to, you know, and, and for you, you're kind of, you, I'm, I won't, I won't, it's like, like for me, this has been what I felt compelled to create and what is creating me. This is my baton. You know, I think you, you have a great baton, but you're, I think your baton you know, may grow and change, Right, um we're not going like minute we're not gonna like limit your baton um, <laughs> but but this is a damn good baton, right like 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 uh the Buddhists would call it the process of spiritual unfolding like like being with each other in the process of our unfolding it's not a bad thing, so do you have questions that you're going to ask me yes <laughs> <Okay>.
0: <laughs> although you answered quite a few of them in yeah. the um, the story that you shared. I was wondering, okay, so you got sober, you mm-hmm. started becoming a yoga teacher, you wrote meditations in the mat. And then what do you do? Like, how do you serve in the world of yoga now? And, and tell us about, you know, your offerings, your workshops, your teacher trainings.
1: Like, you know, my first 10 years, I think I just kind of did what was put in front of me. Right. So this woman came and asked me if I would teach and the voice was like, it's important that you teach yoga. Um, and then about A year and a half later, Baron Baptiste opened a yoga studio about a mile from my house. And I was like deep into like, I wasn't a very experienced teacher, but at that point I was, I was a full on, I'd been a very intense yoga practitioner for what felt like a long time. It was like five or six years, but it's a long time when you're like 30, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like you've given your adult life to something. And so it was like, oh, there's this yoga teacher guy who's come into our community, which was odd. Because at the time, there was no like celebrity teachers. There was no big name teachers. There was yeah. This little, and so I was like, well, this is odd. And so we went and um, I went the first day and I'd been practicing. i learned Kripal Yoga, which is this kind of Hatha Yoga flowy thing. And I'd learned Ashtanga. And I was like, I wanted to be a little bit of both. I wanted to be, have a kind of a flowy thing and I wanted to have an Ashtangi thing. And I came in, and he was teaching this power yoga thing, which was what I wanted to teach. It was super weird. It was like, this is precisely what I would. I'd envisioned it. I wanted to have kind of a flowy improvisational thing, but I wanted to have some yang to it. I don't want it to be like the militant thing over here, but I don't want it to be the flowy, flowy thing. I want to be in the middle. and I want it to be um, fun and a little spontaneous. And I came in and he was like rocking all the, you could tell like, okay, that's Ashtanga, that's Bikram, okay, that's this, you know, but he got to like kind of do some fusion with it he got to have some freedom with it as a teacher instead of like, this is our style. It was like he had some Mm -hmm. freedom and some like ownership of the process, which is an interesting, like, I, I don't know if I shared this part of what it felt like, but I've been in very top down styles where you had the person from India who taught it and you have to teach it the way they teach it, even though you never even saw them. so you don't know if that's how you're supposed to teach it or not. Right. It was like very like that in the nineties, very, very top down on, in terms of if you were a new teacher, you were just being told what's what. You had no voice, you know. And he was like teaching a style that was like he got, he could tell he was like making some stuff up. And he was being creative, you know. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, so I've seen, and so I walked away being like, um, knowing that, that although I was a very junior person in Boston, I was like, I'm. I think I'm like, I'm like probably the best person in Boston to teach this style. Like I kind of had to I realized because I've been thinking about this in advance, I can recognize the value in this Like you gotta figure now this thing that we call minyasa is like all over the world, but yeah. it had never shown up. This is the first day of it being in Boston. Wow. And I'm like, I recognize the value in this. I also was a group facilitator. And the problem with group facilitation is participation and ownership on the part of the people who show up. Like you gotta you gotta crawl across broken glass to, for people to participate in their own recovery. And the thing about yoga class is people participate immediately. Alright, well, it's come to the front of your mat and come into your mountain pose and just feel the earth beneath your feet. Participation, 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 participation. And then if you get good at your job, you have this beautiful somatic thing, but you're also inviting them to, to participate. Like so, you're organizing the process for them but they're the ones driving the train, you know? And so there's ownership and there's ownership. And without that ownership, there's no real learning because the true aim of the teacher is for the student to no longer need the teacher, right? So we have to teach in a way that allows them to learn in a way that allows them to remember and be able to apply it later on in different situations. Our students will have to apply what they're learning with us in situations neither one of us can imagine. And this is the aim of education. And I saw in this kind of like improvisational style, um, a fantastic group to facilitate. Like, a, like a vinyasa class. If you think about it, like I was looking at a vinyasa class as a group facilitator in graduate school for social work and specifically group facilitation. I'm like, wow, this is an amazing group. I mean, it's going to take a while to learn how to run all this. <laughs> this is like, cause like he was like from LA. Like LA yoga teachers at the time were about 50 times better than Boston yoga teachers, right? And so, like, like he was like, wah, 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 doing all this stuff. I'm like, wow, this is going gonna, gonna to take a while to figure all this out. But when I do, this is going to be a great vehicle for group facilitation. And sure enough, the next day I showed up and someone told Baron that I was a teacher. And I had, I didn't know have that identity and I, I didn't know that anyone else knew I was a teacher. So like, yeah, he's a teacher. I was like, what? I'm not a teacher. Um, so that afternoon he asked, he, he offered me a job, you know. Um, mm-hmm. That was in like May and then in August, his wife had been running, a really beautiful teacher, Dana Baptiste, had been running their studio and he, she was kind of the business end of things as well as being an awesome teacher. And she and they, the two of them, their, their marriage failed and she left town and he had to go to Utah where she was, you know, brought the kids and sort up their marriage and their divorce. So I had to run the studio. Wow. And so, like, I had to run a studio and teach all the classes and call him up at night and talk to him while he was in Utah. And that went on for the entire fall and winter of 99, wow. 2000. That's how I learned to teach yoga.
0: And yeah. talk about just, like, stepping into your dharma. Like, it's like, <laughs> it literally just, like, comes and is
1: presented to you, you know? So, yeah. And so I had about a five-year learning curve of just teaching daily classes. But I was committed to also leading um, retreats. I assisted Baron on probably 30, 40 retreats that he taught in, like, Mexico, Costa Rica, Hawaii. And I was constantly assisting and learning about running retreats from the inside out and kind of falling in love with the, the larger picture of the process. And, um, eventually, you know, we didn't really see eye to eye on some things and we like had to live part. but I think that happens. I'm trying to get out put this. I think that, I think that I learned a lot and then it was time for me to move on. Yeah. Um, and I, and I learned a lot from moving on. Um, that I've carried with me in my life, but then I ended up in New York, and I'm teaching. Another, I'm running. A, I'm running a studio for a couple, because like you know, kind of you without any money, you're like like. I, so I was running someone else's business. Yeah. Uh, for, for a long, I ran Barron's business, and I was running someone else. I got hired to run their business. Now I'm in New York running someone's business. Um, and my wife and I did a retreat in Mexico, 2007, and. um we came back and we brought our kids. My daughter, my son's like a baby. You know, my daughter's three. And, and we go to Tulum to, to and it's like, it's just like a week and it's like magical and wonderful. And we get back to our little place in New York and uh, we both are like, our eyes are like just bugging because it's like, this is what we were meant to do. We were having, yeah. we, we did, it was so fun for us to run our own company. I believe that, yeah, that was spring 2007 because I ended my work for that company in, in winter, 2008. And so for that from to there, I started to envision like, um, um, like what I do now is there's a phrase in AA, which is, if you don't like what you hear in a meeting, say it yourself. And so the kind of the inception of my new business was from running studios was I was, I get to New York in 2006 and I'm trying to hire teachers and they just weren't being well-trained. I'm not going to name names, but like big, you know, well-known organizations were turning out teachers and they weren't doing a good job. Mm-hmm. So people like yourself, I mean, think about it, you're, like, you're, you're the demographic, right? It's like young, smart, willing to like do anything, right? Like work, do all the work, learn all the learning, do everything. But you still need like coherent instruction.
0: Education. Yeah.
1: Right. It's just, just because you're like willing to do what it takes and work. Like like you like think about what, what you see in New York from like a teaching, like first class young people willing to bust their butts. But like, if you don't get good instruction, you walk away being like, and then of course there's the neuroplasticity thing is if you learn something the wrong way, as you're trying to learn something the right way, you've got to overcome learning it yeah. the wrong way. So I was having all these teachers who had learned something the wrong way. And it was just like, but they had that kind of young person fragility shall we say and other people would call it arrogance that like they like you, they learned that look i'm certified i went to this this place and like i do it this way and it's just like <laughs> I, you, it'll be very hard for you to succeed if you, could, if you persist on this path, right? It's like, you and I was just like, I, I felt for all these people that I'm trying to hire. Like we were these people from this, like Boston to New York is like provincial. I was this guy from this little town and I'm in New York City and we were like teaching a better class than these people could teach. And they couldn't even mm-hmm. recognize what they couldn't do yet. It was just like a huge gap between like competent yoga teaching and what was coming out of these trainings and even a a sense of what, what was possible, right. Or, or a sense of their role in the student's life. And so I was like, I, you know, what they say is if you don't like what you hear in a meeting, say it yourself, like, don't like complain about things. Don't find fault, make a difference. Yeah. You know? And so I was like, okay, I guess I got to start teaching yoga. Like I didn't want to do teacher trainings because in like 2001, 2003, I was a part of early teacher trainings. And it was like this kind of gold rush where you're putting people through a week of yoga and saying they were level one certified. And it was just like crap. It was just like a week of yoga with 60 people in the room and you're a level one certified. It was just like it wasn't ethical. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be a part of it. I was like, I don't want to work with people who want to be in that space And so I was doing these retreats that was for people who wanted to do spiritual work. And I was like, oh, I know how to like kind of safeguard the spiritual work is by not having any certificate or paper at the end. Like if you're willing to do something for a week without getting a piece of paper. Yes. That's a statement, you know, if you don't get anything out of it other than your own personal growth, that's where Mm I want. So I would, so for, from like 2003 to eight, I didn't do teacher trainings. I'd only do retreats. And In 2008, I was like, I gotta start doing. I gotta start training teachers because, like, I don't. I don't believe. I I believe in them, and the individuals that who are coming through my door and saying they want to be a teacher. I truly believe in them, but I don't believe in how they've been treated, and they deserve to be treated better. They deserve. They're being charged good money and being given a crap product, right? They at least deserve a fair shake, and so that was like, you know, that was my thinking, and. And I, I just went on this path of of doing trainings. And when I started teaching classes, I was like, I'm gonna be the hardest working teacher in showbiz. You know, I'd been like the talented person. You probably know what this is. Like you have the talents and the gifts, and it's like nothing worse than being the talented person who didn't work hard enough to get to where they wanted to go. Right. And so I've been that person. And so when teaching came along, I'm like, I'm going to be the hardest. I'm not going to be the most talented person in the room. I want to be the hardest working person in the room. I want to put my 10,000 hours I want to put my, my 20,000 hours in. I want to put my 50,000 hours in. I want to put my time in. And so I did that with just dropping classes, running studios. And so when I started teaching, doing teacher t- trainings, that's what I did. I was like, I'm just going to run a lot of trainings. I've run a ton of trainings. I'm still running a lot of trainings. You got to be careful about setting powerful intentions because you may live in them. <laughs> you know? And so I wanted to run a lot of trainings, and I've run a lot of trainings. It was like I should have toned it down a little bit. But yeah, I teach. I've taught a lot of teachers, and. That's been in mostly 2008 to now, it's like 14 years. It's been a great run because you meet a lot of great people. Like, as you know, already, like running teacher trainings is a chance to meet fantastic people. Yeah. Like, and then you watch them grow. It's like you meet, this person goes through your training and you blink, it's five years later and they're running a studio. You know what I mean? And yeah. It's like, you get to see this beautiful process. You're a case in point, right? It's amazing stuff that you see, you like blink and they turn around and they're like changing the world. Yeah. Right. And so it's been cool that way. Um, it's kept the lights on, kept the food. My my kids now now 17 and 16 and 19 in May. So in a couple months, I'll be 16 and 19. They were like the baby and the little, you
0: know. Wow. Um,
1: yeah. And, you know, that's been most of it. I've done a couple things. So, teacher, writing teacher trainings was my contribution to the space. It's like, well, I'm going to, it's my way of doing right by the teachers, but also the students who come into the door, right? It was supporting teachers properly. Nikki Myers and I did um, the Yoga and Recovery Conference. Um, we started it like 2010, probably, because um, we were like, because of meditations from the mat, I was getting people coming out of the woodwork. Wherever I yeah. did the workshop, people would say, hey, I'm sober. Yeah. Tragically, a lot of people would say, hey, I'm in relapse. You know, I got a lot of that. Or, hey, my son is using it, won't stop. Yeah. And so I was just hearing about how the yoga space had a lot of um, addiction in it and a lot of recovery in it. And so we started the recovery conference. And then about five years ago, so that was kind of you know, speaking to that issue. And about five years ago, um, you know, about a year, probably a year after Trump came into office, Um, I started what's called Communities Rising, which is yoga teacher trainings for uh, communities of color, which is just an an effort to kind of offset. It felt as though um, the BIPOC community was harmed during that election and harmed by everything that followed it. And and so Communities Rising has been an effort to address the harm. Um, And so... I have my day job, which is mostly training teachers. Yeah. Um, But then I try, if I have extra bandwidth, to address the larger space, influence the larger space. And so those have been two ways that my career is like kind of, I've done the teacher trainings, but I've also done those two two efforts as
0: well. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's like kind of like expanding and and giving back in things that um, are really meaningful to you.
1: Yeah, and keeping learning. Like I, I think that probably, like if you're a full time teacher. The way that you keep growing as a teacher is keep challenging yourself to move into different spaces. Like, yeah, these rising was a different space. The yoga and recovery conference is a different space, and so yeah, I just have been very lucky. The Zoom world and COVID yeah. was like a huge new space to move into. That the whole thing has been a huge tragedy. I have, it has, I'm much happier in my work and I'm a much better teacher than I was three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no question about it. Um, yeah. I think every new cha- I'll close with this. There's a teacher named Matt Sanford who, have you heard of him? No. So he was in a car accident when he was 13 and he woke up with a paralyzed from chest down. And for the next 10 years, he was told, "Yeah, you're dead from the chest down, and um, just learn to use your arms, basically, and have a wow. hard life." And but he always had sensation beneath the injury, you know, and and the doctors were like, "You don't." And so he just like lived with that question. Eventually, he would do yoga and teach yoga. And be able to articulate and demonstrate that although his physical body was injured, his partner body was not, and that his style of yoga is about connect, about bringing awareness to the relationship between your physical body and your energy body. And so he's doing that with people with spinal injuries, but also people with amputations, um, and how, and kind of in like healing that what he calls the trauma that exists there. You know, it's not just a mental emotional trauma; is is that physical trauma, and and you're you're healing that. It's all one trauma, right? And you're healing that trauma. by He calls it starting in the middle that most yogis start with the physical body and then they move yeah. to the energy body. But he starts in the middle because then from there, you, know, you understand? So, but none of this would have happened if something hadn't happened. At 23 years old, he, um, he goes to a yoga teacher and says, can you teach me yoga? Because I kind of want to like, he had this intuition that there was something in yoga that would help him kind of resolve because these doctors were saying he wasn't feeling this and he was feeling it. And now when you put him in an MRI and you touch his feet, the parts of his brain light up that would light up in our physical body is in communication with his energy body. Now we have an MRI and you can see that he was true. He was experiencing this. No way of like, he's like, I experienced this, you know, and the doctor's like, no, you're not. And so he's like, I'll try yoga. because They're woo woo. And so maybe they'll like, listen to me. And so the first yoga teacher was like, I can't help you. And the second yoga teacher said, I'll try. Now, he had to go to the second teacher. He had to not quit. And there's a lot that went, a lot that he had to do. But I feel like the part that we can play in this story is to be the second teacher and say, I'll try. Yeah. So with the recovery conference, I'll try. With the with Communities Rising, I'll try. I'll try. You know, with what you're doing and, and with this work, it's like, I'll try. Yeah. And we'll be created by that which you are compelled to create.
0: Amazing oh ralph thank you so much for being on the show it was just like so wonderful to hear more of your story and like how you got to where you are and and connect and i just really appreciate your time so thank you so much Yeah,
1: i was like like, wow i wonder if she wanted that much um (laughs) but yeah yeah those are cool stories i don't talk about meditation i don't know that i've ever actually told that story well, meditation to Matt's is a story that wanted to be told. So thank you for listening.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing. I have one last question I want to ask you. If you had any advice or wisdom for someone who is just starting out their sober journey, what mm-hmm. would you say?
1: I'd like to have, have to come back and talk more about sobriety. We talked a lot about yoga. But I'd love to. Mm-hmm. I think That's important. You can't. Your peace cannot be found in the future or the past. Right. You can only find your peace in the present. And so there's this willingness to live one day at a time, to live this present day in a way that brings joy to your heart. That is what recovery is. It's like you're worth a, good, a sober day. You're worth a sober day. Just have a good sober day. Don't worry. Don't try to find peace in the future. There is no peace in the future. There is no peace in the past. There's only peace in the present. And like that's all we need yeah the peace that can be found in the present is all the peace you'll ever find and so just you know some people ask me like what would the buddha say about this or that i'm like the buddha can't help you with the past or with the future the buddha cannot help you with your past cannot help you with your future the buddha can only be found and can only be you can only apply the teachings of the buddha in the present i guess that's what i'd say is that you're worth a sober day and just just let that be enough for you just to, to To celebrate what it takes to put together a sober day, and become really good at it, become good, be kind of like an authority on on a good sober day, and let the rest of it work itself out because it definitely, definitely will. And these early days are quite sacred and quite brief. You'll find yourself like three, four, five years sober, whatever. You know, partnered, careered, and like, but for a brief moment in time, you get your life has become very simple and very clear. It's like, it's like you're not drinking one day at a time. And then you're using that sober day to find a little joy and a little peace, a little connection, right? A little laughter. This is all that's needed of you. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, then you can help countless others, right? The countless others need you to have a good day. <laughs> If you can have a good day, one day at a time, uh, eventually you'll touch the lives of countless others.
0: Yeah. What a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Ralph. I really appreciate your time. Honestly, it was amazing to just have an opportunity to interview. Like I consider you my teacher and, and I really, I just really appreciate your time. So thank you so much. You're welcome.
1: You're welcome. It was my pleasure.
0: And I'm sure we will cross paths again when I'm back in uh, back in the States. I'm going to make sure I make it to Kripalu at some point to join another one of your trainings.
1: All right. Well, thank you. All
0: right. We'll speak to you soon. All right.
1: Take care. Thank you for having me.
0: Bye. Bye. Hi, friend. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sober Yoga Girl Podcast. This community would not exist without you. So thank you for being here. It would be massively helpful if you subscribe to this show and leave a review so that we can reach more people. And if we haven't met yet in real life, please come hop on Zoom at the Mindful Life Practice because the opposite of addiction is connection. Sending you love and light wherever you are in the world.